Welcome to another episode of Inside the Recording Studio. I am Jody Whitesides, and with me as always is Mr. Chris Hellstrom. How are you today, Chris? I'm doing good. I'm doing good, Jody. How about yourself? You sounded very energetic there. I'm feeling energetic, so why shouldn't I sound it? I got nothing funny to say to that, so (laughs) good for you, man. Good for you. You having a good week? So far, so good. Tomorrow, I end up dropping a lot of money that I don't wish to drop, but it'll be for good stuff, so... Aside right, from that, there you go. life is good. Cool. Like to hear it. Awesome. Yes. What are we yapping about today? We're talking about separation in a mix and not from a significant other. Although yeah. one instrument could be a significant other to another, in that regard, it could be separation of significant others in a mix, of course. It could be. Yes. And it could also be if you spend too much time mixing, you might get a separation of a significant other in your real life as well. But this is true. <laughs> yeah. It has happened more than once to me, so shit. Yeah. Relationship advice from two <laughs> engineers. Yeah. Uh, no, we're talking about separation in a mix, obviously. And I suppose we should define first what we see as definition of, of separation. So I'll start with you. When you say separation in a mix, what, what does that mean to you? When two sounds are distinctly heard in a song or an audio file of some sort in that I can tell it's two distinct pieces, parts, whether it's two different instruments playing the same melodic thing or two different instruments playing two different melodic things, but they're not in the same realm where they're stepping all over each other in such a way that I can't tell what is what. That's separation to me. Yeah, I share a, a similar view. I think To me, separation is when I can, at least if I focus on it, if it's a dense mix, if you will, or at least a busy mix, Mm -hmm. that I can pick out individual parts. And it's not just a giant wall of sound. So, you know, I hear RK, I hear the kazoo, and I hear the tambourine, and I, you know, I can pick out the bass and the percussion part, and everything kind of has... Well, don't forget the accordion. Obviously, but that's what it's to me. Separation in the mix is where I can clearly hear everything and, you know, where everything is placed, and even if it requires that I focus on it somewhat. Yes. But I can pick out elements of the mix. That's what it means to me. Well, I'm in agreement with you. It means the same to me. All right, cool, cool. So is this always a good thing? I mean, should we always strive for this or is this sometimes not a requirement? The long answer is no. Do you want it to be That's longer? Long, <laughs> I, that, would, that would probably be the shortest answer ever. But yeah, so what, what's the long answer? The long answer is no, it's not always the desired result. Right, of course. Right? Not everything is, is treated equally. And sometimes it's appropriate to have perhaps a... Not Dense mishmash. Bit. Yes. That's a much better phrase than I was going to come up with. But yeah, because sometimes that's appropriate. Mm-hmm. So just striving for definition, I think, is style dependent. Ding, 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 ding. I, I, I don't all- know if I would go so far as saying style dependent as it would be artist dependent on how they want to hear their song. Yeah. And I guess we can even bring it down to more song dependent as well, because you, you, as an artist, you might want to make different artistic statements depending on perhaps where you're at at the moment. If you're What era are you in? Are you in the seventies or something? No, the reason why I ask that is, is because today, a lot of times, especially with artists that are signed to labels, they don't have that artistic freedom of going in a variety of different directions. Usually they come upon a sound, they define that sound, that's it, that's what they do, and they do nothing more. That's true. That is a perhaps 
unfortunate reality. I think the flip side of that could be like you sort of find your voice and then you stick to that. But if you go back a few decades, that was not always the case. Exactly. Right? Look, look at bands like Queen or even Prince or certainly somebody like Bowie. Whereas mm. like talking about chameleons, right, and changing sure. their sounds. Kiss. That's over a little bit more of a kiss. Did you say kiss? <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, An argument could be made, but I won't make it. Yes. Right. No. To me, when we're talking about here, you know, separation in the mix of being style dependent, I think that's very much on what is happening to you as an artist at this moment. Sure. Right. If you're focused on a little bit more of a high fidelity type of a sound, you're probably striving for that. If you are going for, you know, let's say like an early punk mix or you're going for more hardcore kind of a style or even some... Grunge. Yeah, grungier, or even in, you know, the hip hop world, I suppose, where there's more of perhaps like an aggressive kind of sound. You might not want it to be pretty. Well, you know, no, and not- it doesn't necessarily have to be pretty or aggressive to either want separation or not. Because you can think of emo. There's not a lot yeah. of separation in that, It depending on the artist, but. We'd have to decide that first, if that's indeed the goal. And if you are the mix engineer, this is obviously a discussion you have with the artist. Like, what's your vision for this record? What is it that you want? Yes. How are some ways that we can create this? Your first thought is like, well, when I'm thinking about separation, what's your first idea on that? The arrangement of the parts. Yeah. That's the absolute first thing is the arrangement of the parts. You want separation, you have to learn arranging. That's this is it's true. as simple as it gets. Yeah, and we've talked about that in older episodes here, but just the idea of shoehorning everything into the mix when you're, or into the song rather, when you are creating it, just because you feel, oh, this would be a cool idea here. Here's this little nice response melody to this. And at the same time, we're going to have this Tom fill going on. And then underneath that, there's a loop going on that's going to add a nice syncopation to that. Well, that might be too much, and you have to be selective. You're describing there, the so. way I grew up trying to record. <laughs> I yes, I, I agree. I same thing here, and just oh, I had a good idea. I have to use it. No, you don't. You know that there'll be more good ideas. So, being a little selective and creating peaks and valleys, I would say perhaps maybe and a better way to say it is a great idea is to not use everything. Ooh. Quote of the week there. <laughs> that's, some, that's some wisdom from Mr. Whitesides. Oh, I drop it once in a while. Everyone's Whitesides wisdom. Right? And hashtag Whitesides wisdom. Right. <laughs> what else can be a way to kind of create separation in a mix, Chris? Assuming that we have a decent arrangement to work with, the simplest tools that we have available to us is volume and panning. And we'll start with volume. Right. right? And not everything has to be at the same volume through the entire track. Oh, Peshaw. I love everything being at the same volume. Don't you? Absolutely. Unity gain and then just compress (laughs) it and have the compressor mix it for you, right? Right. Um, All joking Joking aside, it's easy to dismiss something that's such a simple tool as having volume automation. Yep. And I think it can come down to just sort of like lazy mixing, right? Where... You know, you might have, let's say that there is an acoustic guitar that is present through the entire song, for example. Mm -hmm. But maybe when it comes into the verses, it comes down a couple of dB to kind of give room for the vocal a little bit more or whatever. So, Well, that's what studio interns are for. Automating your mix? Yes. (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, that's what studio interns were for when everything was done on console and nothing was actually automated. You had to have everybody in synchronicity doing things on the console at given times in the mix. Yeah. Most all, often all, it was for volume rides and such, and everybody had to work in unison, so to yeah, speak. All hands on deck. All hands on deck. Live mix down, right? Yeah. All hands on console. We've Do moved you, past um, that now, though. Yeah. And I think everybody's happier for it. Right? Sure. Because now it's yeah. repeatable. This is true. Yeah. Do the recall and go, ooh, we got to try that again. Right. right. There's a wonderful story somewhere about a Lang production at Mixdown. And this is, again, before pre-automation where somebody would sit with a 32-band EQ, graphic EQ, in mm. their lap during Mixdown and mix the vocals and accenting certain frequencies to bring out certain syllables and all this kind of stuff. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. It so is, when we're talking about yes, there we go. That's much. So today with the tools that we have for just simple volume automation, we have no reason not to use it or or to complain. So that's volume. Another big one is obviously panning, right? Where in the stereo field are are we sitting? Yes. You know? That's something that you and I again have talked about before. But do you have perhaps a philosophy of how you like to pan stuff or how do you usually go about that? I know the song will dictate, but. Generally speaking, the song will dictate, but there are kind of two schools of thought here. Mm -hmm. And the first school of thought is the mix engineers that believe you have center, left and right. That's it. Nothing in between. Yeah. I'm not one of those. The other school of thought is you have left, right and everything else in between. Right. For me, I like to use the entire spectrum and I do it kind of judiciously based on whatever the material is. Yeah. And what part I, of the song it is as well. Yes. I agree with all of that. I think that there's a lot of missed opportunity perhaps if we don't use the entire space. Now, I choose parts relative to the importance of what they are. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, there are things like kick, snare, and lead vocal will always be right up the middle for me. Sure. And But then there are other things that, that can be moving around a little bit, perhaps. Let's say that you have a percussion part. Does that need to be hard left or hard right? No, that to me can live somewhere in between, right? Just where it's appropriate. And if you're doing that kind of thing, let's say that it's a tambourine part. One thing that I try to make use of is be aware of where if there is, quote unquote, real drums on it or just even drums with a hi-hat part, make sure you're not clashing with that, right? So maybe put that off to a side in the opposite direction of, of a hi-hat thing to kind of make sure that you get a little bit of a separation there as well. Sure. But I like to take up that whole space as well. It's all there for the use. Why not use yeah. it? Yeah, indeed. Now, it's interesting when we listen to some older records with this where, let's say, Van Halen, for example, like mm -hmm. the early Van Halen albums, you have guitar in one speaker and you got bass in the other. And that can give a very sort of like off kilter, hard to get more separation than that, right? <laughs> but Are you sure? Yeah, you don't need to move, moving into like Atmos for, for more separation than that, I think. But sure. sometimes if you get a little bit too aggressive, I guess, with, with the panning, you can just lose a little bit of impact, I suppose. Well, to me, the concept of left, right, center in terms of pan locations Mm -hmm. is more definitive of mono and AM radio and things that are of a single speaker situation. That is my concept behind it because that gets you that separation that needs to happen in terms of making things fold down to mono really well. Things can still fold down to mono really well. 
even without mm-hmm. going for the hard left, right, center type of panning. It really depends upon the mix engineer and how they like to approach dealing with their situation. Yeah. Now, stretching the panning thing, you hinted at it a little bit. There's also Dolby Atmos now, which gives you a 3D field in which to place things. Yeah. That in and of itself with a standard band setup could be very disorienting. It can be, yes. It doesn't necessarily mean that it would be, but it can be. And the idea there is that maybe it's not always ideal to put kick in the rear center or something of that nature and then throw the toms in the left, right, front center type thing and then stick them up on the ceiling speakers or something. You could do it, but it might sound really bizarre on a drum kit. Who knows? Yeah. That's something we kind of hinted at in the Dolby Atmos episode as well. And I think just the thought there of perhaps being a little too clever for your own good, you know, and just because you can do something doesn't mean that it's a good idea. Right. And I think that can also translate into just standard sort of stereo mixing where just because you can automate the the bass to travel left to right in a dotted quarter note fashion, it <laughs> might not mean that that's a good idea, right? Unless you're trying to get your listeners seasick, you know? Well, and now you're kind of bringing up another concept of how to create separation in a mix, and that is keeping certain frequencies in check. Yeah. And by putting them in certain spots, so to speak, in relation to other instruments in Well, it's one instrument related to another and the frequencies that you choose to accept or put into the mix. So that's, I mean, a common one there is, you know, we all talk about is we like to have kick and bass right down the middle. There's a lot of overlapping frequencies there. Uh We have to choose what's going to get priority. One thing I like to say, a mix is not a democracy, Right, So not everything gets equal say. So you have to choose what's going to be the most important part for the song that you're working on. Now for a word from our sponsor. And when we come back, we'll be talking about the actual EQing and such of keeping things separated in a mix. And we're back. All right. We're going to talk about how we use some EQ to help separate things in a mix. And I mean, if we take that example again, where it's an obvious one with a kick and the bass. Again, a lot of overlapping frequencies there. So if we choose to have the kick to be most prominent, where the fundamental of the kick might lie somewhere, let's say it's around 60 cycles or something. And and if the bass is taking up the same space there, maybe we need to carve out a little bit of that or use side chaining as I, but we might have to just like notch out a little bit of frequencies there, not completely remove them because you don't want to alter the the sound of the instrument too much, but just to create a little bit of extra space for the kick. Is there anything else that you'd like to do that with, with EQ on the, the low end there? There's a lot of different things I like to do. And yeah. one of the things that I like to do is check out the push and pull value of a kick and a bass. If a kick drum has a negative start value on its mm-hmm sound wave and the bass has a positive start value. Now all of a sudden you've got competing things going on with how they're going to layer together. Because if the kick is pulling the speaker in and the bass is trying to punch it out, you're going to get a problem where you're losing value altogether because it causes the speaker to kind of stay center in its movement, which 
kind of silences the sound. It's almost as if it's nulling itself out. If there's a specific issue where the kick and the bass are really not gelling well at all, I'm going to check the value of which way they're going when they're doing their initial hits. So you're essentially describing like phasing here really between different instruments where the same frequencies either, like you said, starting with a negative value or positive value where it just interacts with the cone differently you just can't reproduce yep, it exactly in the same way and so. that's still an eq thing because you're gonna have to flip one or the other to get them to coincide with each other and then you have to deal with the eq as well in terms of carving things out i might bump something a little bit below the area for one of the instruments and then i might take something out in that same area with the other one. So with the kick, I might boost around 55, even though it's like really starting at 60, so to speak. And with the bass, I might cut around the 55 area and boost a little bit more around the 65 or 70 to kind of get them living in a different space, even though it seems really minor. And I'm not doing heavy handed moves with that EQ, but I'm doing it to make sure that one lives where the other one is not, even if it's closely related in the sound's frequency. Now, beyond that, if you're getting separation between, say, the bass and the guitars, a lot of people may not take the high-pass filter to a guitar. Yeah. Because they, oh, I want everything in that guitar sound. And I get it. I understand that there's times when you need that. But when you have a heavy bass and a heavy guitar that needs to live in a different realm, you might be doing a low pass filter on the bass and a high pass filter on the guitar to really separate the distinction between the two. And that will create a lot more space in your mix between those two instruments. Yeah, so you're essentially creating a little bit more space where you're taking out the low lows of the guitar that don't necessarily add too much to the sound, but just kind of like clutter up the mix and likewise on the bass where you might not need depending on the part you might not need all the high end there to um, create more space for other instruments that might live in that area well the same can be held true for the synthesizers as well because you know oftentimes when you have the patch of a synth that's meant to be played solo so to speak and it has this really dense nature to it that doesn't always fly in mixes that have a lot of other instruments going on. So you need to do some pretty radical EQ moves at times to get a synth part to sit in there better. That's something I have to do a lot with one of the projects I work with where it's a relatively layered soundscape, shall we say. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when you try to do too much, you have to be pretty aggressive with your EQ sometimes. Now, you could argue that, well, you just haven't arranged it well enough. But in this case, it might add something, but it's the synth sound, and I think it's synth specifically, can tend to take up so much space in the frequency range that it just it can be hard to make them fit. So when you're listening to them in solo after they've done mixing, they, they can sometimes sound really, really odd. Or tiny. They're not... They're not intended to be listened to in that way. So that's just the way that they they can have maximum impact in in your mix and you have to remove a lot of stuff. Sure. Now, if we're going in line with the idea of the side chaining that you mentioned earlier, most often I'm going to be using this in two instances. One is the instance between the kick and the bass and the other Mm -hmm. instance is between the vocal and the rest of the mix. And I tend to do the second one less often. Mm -hmm. But in the case of kick and bass, 
depending on which instrument is your non-democracy, like your authoritarian in the song, yeah, you're going to choose that instrument to drive the sidechain output to the other instrument. And quite often, especially with things like EDM, it's the kick drum yeah. that is much more important. So you're going to have the kick drum feeding a compressor to the bass that when that kick drum hits, it dips the value of the bass and automatically creates the space for the kick drum to shine. And then the bass just slides right back in behind the end of the kick drum sound. Yeah. And the same can be held true for vocals, especially with lead vocals. Like if a lead vocal is really having a little bit of trouble, you wouldn't be as aggressive with it in terms of how you would side chain it. You have the lead vocal controlling a side chain. And rather than side chaining the entire mix with the lead vocal, I tend to do it with vocal effects, especially yeah. vocal effects that keep trailing off into the background of the mix. I'm going to have the lead vocal controlling a side chain compression to those background effects that when the lead vocal comes back in and the effect is still going, it's going to dip the effect so that the lead vocal still shines while yeah. the effect is going. And when the lead vocal stops, that effect can still shine. Yeah. Often you're talking about delays and reverbs and things like that now where yes. you might have a trailing echo going on and it essentially just kind of muddies up the lead vocal line. So you can use that, the side chaining to essentially just duck those out of the way. And that, that's a really effective way. And that can also be applied to any other instrument because guitars can have a lot of delays on them as well, or any instrument that where if he's got an effect on it that's trailing the instrument, oftentimes it is a good idea to sidechain it. Yeah. So get it out of the way. Another thing that we can do, of course, is, you know, multiband compression. If there is a certain frequency range where, you know, let's say that there's a certain part of the song where the bass is just certain frequencies are just building up too much or something. Mm -hmm. We can use set multiband compression for that range or even dynamic EQs and things like that to deal with problem areas. A lot of these issues that we're talking about frequency-wise, I think can be traced back to possibly being solved at the arrangement stage. Or even where, the initial recording stage with how you recorded something. You know, in the defense of that, though, if when we're tracking something, we might not realize that we're creating an issue because other things could be built on later. But mm -hmm. it is good to think about these things. And the way of kind of fixing stuff, obviously, in the mix is always should always be predicated by get it right at the source first, right? So we're just like enhancing us to have to do heavy-handed carving with, with EQ or compression or, or any of that kind of stuff. I agree. So, but those are things that we can do to create separation with the volume, the panning, obviously, and then EQ. Now, what about besides side-chaining thing? Do you ever get really heavy-handed with compression or anything to sort of stop a certain instrument of really, really sort of taking over the mix in parts? Or is that primarily a, a volume and volume automation thing for you? Let's say that there's a percussion part, for example. It would depend on the performance. If the performance yeah. is like screwy in terms of its actual volume levels, that's something that, you know, you use a volume ride, right, for that. So you just, you're looking at the waveform and figuring out where is, where is it getting louder, where is it getting softer kind of thing. If it's a general move that isn't super sharp, that's easier to deal with with a volume ride automation. 
If yeah. it is something where it's just not a consistent performance from the artist in and of themselves, well, then there's a couple of ways to deal with it. You can do some volume automation for one, and two, you throw some compression on it, and depending on or limiting, and depending on how heavy-handed you need to be, you do what you need to do to get it hammered into submission, so to speak, or hammered into shining ability of wherever it needs to be. <laughs> for me, that that often happens with a percussion part, and it might be a tambourine or a shaker part, where there might be certain aspects of the performance that are just like poking out too much, whether there's an accent that just kind of triggers a little bit too much. And while in isolation, that might sound like a really human sort of dynamic performance, for that to perhaps sit better and even get more clarity like we're talking about right now, sometimes just like compressing that a little bit more to make sure that you even out the dynamics, you're not necessarily losing the the human performance of it, you're just making it a little bit steadier to kind of sit in the mix where you'd like it to be and therefore creating its own space type of thing. Sure. That's one thing where some fast attack compression like 1176 type of thing can come in handy. Yep. And the next thing um, that you kind of have to take a look at in terms of creating separation often has to do with timing. Yes. From the performances in and of themselves. It's true. And especially if you're overdubbing parts, mm -hmm. right? Or, or uh, not overdubbing parts, I'm sorry, when you're layering parts. If you're having two guitars, three guitars doing the same thing to kind of build that up, that's obviously you want to make sure that all of those things are, are really good or you're like smearing <laughs> the, the track, as it were. And that brings up another thing that I like to touch on as well, because I, I recently did a mix where I employed this and I hadn't done the tracking on the session, mm -hmm. but there were guitars that had been recorded with three different microphones. And that's that's it's a not, lot. It's a lot for most people. It's not necessarily a lot for some things that I have seen. But generally speaking, if you're using a lot of mics, you're doing it as a blend. Yes. I could be wrong. I'm just speculating here because the engineer that did the basic tracking overall did a really good job. But this was going to be multi-tracked distorted guitar parts. Mm-hmm left and right, and I believe it was even doubled in some parts. And when you have three microphones that are there, that from my perspective, in a dense mix, they didn't necessarily complement each other. It, it seemed like it was more of an issue where, well, we have all these available. Let's use them all and then decide down the line what we're going to use, right? <laughs> and that, that, that can happen. That's you know, if you're the producer and you're not really sure of what it is that you're going for, you know, hey, you get the performance, do it, right? In my case, when it came to mixing this, I ultimately found that it wasn't necessarily getting a pleasing mix out of that. And it was a dense mix to begin with, a lot of instrumentation going on. So I ended up just nixing two of them. And mm. I just ended up keeping like 57. Like there's no magic, no. Standby standard. Yeah, there was no professor shit going on here. It was just like 57 left and right, and that was it. And that ended up being more suitable, in my opinion, for the mix. Sometimes, again, just because you can doesn't mean that you should, right? If you're not sure why you're using multitudes of mics on the source, perhaps going with one or if you have to, two, right, if they're complementing each other. Sure. Th that's something else to keep in mind uh, when something can sound just like overbearing in the mix because you got double track guitars and they each have three tracks going at the same time, you know, and getting that blend right. So sometimes 
as the saying goes, less is more, right? Or at least bigger impact. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure I'll agree with either of those statements, but okay. Yeah. Mm. Well, more is always more, but not more is 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 always better. All right, anyway. What the song is calling, (laughs) it's whatever the song calls for. And if the song's not calling for having a really dense guitar sound or a really dense kick drum sound or whatever it is that you're multi-miking with a bazillion mics, don't do it. Yeah. Just don't do it. And with that, we're going to move into our Friday finds. Yes. What do you got for us, Chris? Well, I was super impressed with a plugin that I have used for a while now, Mm -hmm. and you have as well. And this is something that you showed me, and my jaw kind of hit the floor. I'm talking about Isotopes RX-9, Mm -hmm. which the whole suite is just amazing. I don't know what kind of code sorcerers they have over there at Isotope, but they're they're doing something inhumane and just <laughs> amazing stuff. But what I'm talking about today is music rebalance. Yes. And you showed me something where that was used on a stereo track that you had gotten. Mm-hmm. And I believe you used the ARA version of it. Yep. And the job it did was freaking amazing. It was really, really impressive. So... That has to be my Friday fan for this week. Isotopes RX-9 Music Rebalance, because that was some seriously impressive stuff right there. Yeah, it was jaw-dropping, to say the least. Because I know you were excited, too, because you called me. Dude, (laughs) Dude, you you have to listen to this. (laughs) You don't have time, but you got to do it now. Yeah. Yeah. That was pretty amazing. What about you? What do you got? My find for this week is a new compressor by a company that is a new company, relatively new, called Mixland. And they mm-hmm. have a new compressor out called the Rubber Band Compressor. That almost sounds like it's the obvious of what we've been talking about today. But <laughs> almost, almost. Yeah. The interesting thing about the interface on this particular compressor is that it actually has a pair of hands holding a rubber band in it. And okay. that thing moves based on the sound that's going through it and the settings that you set on it. It's pretty Hmm. fun to watch. It's based on VCA compression. And you can set the tension of how tight the rubber band is that allows it to react differently if the rubber band is set looser. And it's like a typical compressor in and of itself other than the rubber band settings. It's really amazing what this compressor can do. Right now, I believe it's still on sale for like 20 bucks. Oh, cool. Maybe it's $29. And then it's going to go up. Oh, in that case, I'm out. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's not, it's not overly expensive and it's got a really neat interface and the sound and what it can do is really quite amazing for a compressor. I'm recommending the rubber band compressor by Mixland. Cool. While we've got your attention, we're going to ask that you go to our website and leave us a review at insidetherecordingstudio.com forward slash review. Or just go to insidetherecordingstudio.com and sign up for our email list. Doing so gets you weekly reminders about our episodes and the Tuesday tips when they come out. And we'll make sure that you don't miss any future episodes. The extra added bonus of being on the email list is when we are doing a giveaway, you are automatically entered to win. Doesn't mean you will win, but you are automatically entered. Yes, Send us an email at goldstar at insidetherecordingstudio.com with the word separation. 
and you'll get something cool back in your inbox. And if you have a topic of suggestion for us to explain in a future episode, run to the contact page on the website, hint, hint, and we'll put it into consideration for a future episode. And with that, see you next week. Have a good one, Jody. Thanks for listening, people.